Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. Yes, I am your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here again with our cast from the Everyday Mindfulness Show. This week's cast includes Barry Moniak and Sammy Rangel, and you can find out about each of them at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. This week, we're talking about insecurity. Specifically, is insecurity as an armor, like a shield of armor. And the reason this came about is the following quote really struck me. It was, People make the armor from their smartness or their anger or their quiet or their fear or their being busy or their being nice. Some people make it from a big show, always talking. Some make it by being very important. And that quotes from the book Breakfast with Buddha by Roland Morello, I find it very powerful because I know when I'm in a place of insecurity, I have had a history or a track record of always talking. Like, I need to be talking. I need to be running the show. I've caught myself doing that. So that really hit with me when I read that. Like, ooh, that's really good stuff. What are examples for the two of you where you've caught yourself, where insecurity becomes an armor and how you caught it? What's a specific example? Public speaking, getting in front of an audience and and all of a sudden having that that tremor. I've got something to say. I just don't know who you people are and, and how maybe best to say it or whether you're going to be interested or, and, and it was like, okay, this is not a good formula. So what's the shield that you would put up in those moments? Cause that's what this is referring to that shield we put up to try to make it look like we're not insecure, even when we are. And it's not a, it's not a sincere thing, right? The shield is a bit of a phony. So what for you was it Barry, when that happened? Well, it's maybe talking faster, relying on professional, prowess, you know, my credentials, my this and that, rather than admitting that I need to connect to you people better. Awesome. So for you, right out of the quote, right? That's the, uh, use your smartness, right? And so that makes sense. That that makes total sense. Yeah. Jason uh, Hewlett is is a, a friend and associate. And, and I was getting ready to go on to do a little demo video thing or a speaker showcase and I wasn't convinced that I wanted to do it because I didn't feel like that audience were my people, that they were really interested in what I had to say. So I was questioning myself, why would I put myself through this? And Jason, you know, he coached me a little bit before, but then he, he asked me to please call him the next day. 
And when we talked about it, he said, so what's the problem? And it's like, I don't like talking to people if I'm not sure that they want to hear what I have to say. And he goes, well, tell me when you're in your sweet spot. And I said, well, when I've worked with an organization for some weeks or some months, I've had the opportunity to interact with people. I know their language. I know their idiosyncrasies. I know their pain points. Now I can, I can reach into my little bag of, of goodies and, and tell a story or, or bring some information to bear that's very relevant to them. And he says, so why don't you do that? And I'm like, Jason, did you not hear what I just said? And he said, yeah, I'm wondering if you heard what I just said. And I've got Jason on a bit of a pedestal. He's this amazing presenter, performer. And he said, why can't you just be honest with them and say, you know what, folks, this isn't what I normally do. What I normally do is I go into your organizations and I work with you one-on-one -on -one or in small groups until I really get to know the organization. But since we're here, there's some things that I'd like to talk about. And he said, then you can tell the people in the audience who are tracking with you and start having a conversation with them. Or better yet, he said, I bet you're one of those people that you go to the meeting early and you've already been having conversations with people. Just go, hey, Mike, is it okay if we continue the conversation we were having before this started? Because we were getting into some really good stuff. And I went, well, Jason, that's what I do when I'm in the organization. He goes, then do it on stage. So what you're describing there actually is your armor wasn't to be smart. Your your armor was to quiet, right? To to not engage because you didn't have enough information. I don't have a legitimacy to be here. Right. And but the armor you put up was so that's the insecurity. But this quote saying what's the armor we put up when the insecurity appears? Well, they're not my people. Right. Right, exactly. They're not my people and so I just won't talk. I'll right. stay quiet. All right, I won't engage with these people. So that's a great example. Sammy, what about you? When you are feeling a sense of insecurity with a group of people or a person, what's what are those armors do you put up? The quiet, the being busy, the anger, the smartness, the for me always talking. Yeah, and I'll come from another I'll come from another angle. You know, I'm a social worker, so I always get to the heart of the matter, right? So for me, it was trusting relationships with people. And I'm not even talking about years ago. I mean, you know, it hasn't been that long ago that I've made some decisions to change my armor when it comes to relationships. What I what I do when I feel that people are getting too close to me, and if I'm afraid of that intimacy, I will act kind of like I I really don't care about the outcome of the relationship. So I'll act distant. Mm -hmm. I will act like I'm pretty cool. You know, like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll kind of be like aloof, you know, a little bit like, yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, go ahead and do that. But deep down inside, I'm hurting. I'm feeling insecure. I'm, I'm, in, I'm untrusting at that time. And I, and I tend not to speak my mind. So because I don't want the other person to kind of know what I'm really thinking uh, or feeling at the time. You know, and that comes from having had bad experiences in my life and I, I know that about myself and so you know today I'm very conscious of the fact that I I, uh, I need to put those guards down and those defenses down you know and it's it's I wouldn't say that it's me being phony you know I think people people have defenses because of trauma or wounds that they carry and so they're doing whatever they can for whatever reason in any way that they can to keep themselves uh, what they think is safe or in a position of power as opposed to a position of weakness. Those are just kind of the the myths that we have about 
how these defenses really help us. You know, if you ask me, all of my defenses only bring me closer to the things I'm trying to defend against and then not really distancing myself from them. Well, and I think you said something brilliant there about that idea of we all have this. It's not that we're phony when it's happening, and it's not. And right, phony is our way of judging ourselves for having these, right? For, for giving ourselves almost a score on how well we're doing versus all of these are part of me, right? The fact that I could become quiet, the fact, because I bet, I bet all of us in these different moments do almost all these examples of armor that quote said. I bet in a given moment where I like to talk, where my history has been to be talking, don't let silence happen because that's scary. But I've also been very quiet, like you just described, Sammy, in other situations where I'm like, well, I, I don't want to be judged the wrong way, so I'll just stay quiet here, So, which is the extreme opposite. So I think it depends on the circumstance we're in. I think for anybody listening, I think an interesting question is to ask yourself, where do I try to show smartness? Where do I try to show quiet? Where do I show fear or being busy? What is the circumstance? What insecurity draws which of these out or with who? I think that leads to some really insightful discoveries for ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to, to maybe ask a, a question, why? Why am I experiencing insecurity? Because insecurity is the polar opposite of security. If something is secure, it's locked down. It's safe. If it's insecure, then there's this idea, well, something bad or less than than opportune could happen what what is that like like sammy said have i had a bad experience in the past and that's feeding my insecurity or is it maybe you know i'm i'm counting on something being tied down and and i'm looking and i can see it's not well if my life is is hinged to that thing being tied down i've got a darn good reason to be insecure and i'll expand on that too i I really agree with that that resonates with me quite a bit and I think it goes even a step further. You know, a lot of times we talk about ego. Uh, I think we misinterpret ego always meaning arrogance. But a lot of times it's it's ego is, is also leading to the sensation or the feeling of not measuring up, not being good enough or qualified or... To me, I, I talk about this concept of time bending. Uh, certain things might trigger something from my past, but it feels like it's happening again in this moment. And so I haven't really evolved in my emotional or my intellectual response to that to that trigger. And so I, I kind of re-imitate or replay that whole scenario back out again. And then I do whatever I did then now as a way of just trying to manage or cope right. with that with that situation. I love the time bending concept there because it makes it seem like a a paradigm shift instead of a judgment. You know, am I am I time bending right now versus am I living in my past, which always sounds so bad. For you know, if you go, yeah, I'm time bending. Yeah, I am. It doesn't sound judgmental. And maybe it's just it's maybe it's semantics because we haven't used it enough. You know what I mean? But if we use it all the time, then it it has a negative with it. But it, it does give a non-judgmental understanding of what I'm doing right now. If someone is is showing a defense and we either talk to ourselves or are being talked to as if someone is condemning us, all it does is trigger more of the defense. You know, without compassion or empathy for that person being defensive, you're really just playing into the defense mechanism that they're using at that time. And and I've been fortunate, you know, to be around people who who under and, and because I'm transparent about it, they're who understand when I'm 
being defensive, you know, insecure, and really coached me out of that through love, through patience, through um, understanding, kindness. You know, it's uh, and it's it's done wonders for me. You know, it's it's just uh, been re- uh, remarkable. And I find that when you're that way with others, it does wonders for them as well. I've I've seen it a lot in in the business realm in terms of leadership, management, sales, where the insecurity can become mm-hmm. debilitating. That's when we talk about the armor. That's where I see people put on this myriad of of array of armors. Everything from arrogance to, you know, I don't even want to deal with you anymore. Uh, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Rather than addressing what, what's really going on here and can we, can we just put it into perspective? The insecurity is you may or may not want to buy what I have or you may or may not want to do what I need you to do. But now let's find out if, in fact, that's a reality or not. You know, you bring up an interesting point because what what you're really referring to is what I would call psychic space. And when a person feels safe, they don't require as much psychic space as they do when they feel insecure. And so what you'll see is when insecurities kick in and through all those little strategies and tactics you just talked about, Barry, they either try to distance themselves from you by rejecting you, yelling, you know, which, which also implies trying to create more distance not closeness you know all those all those types of things really talk about and and are revealing where a person is feeling psychically are they cognitively emotionally intellectually feel safe because when they feel safe none of those none of those strategies or or tactics are are necessary they're only deployed when they feel like their psychic space is being um, invaded or encroached upon, and so they start to do things to stretch those boundaries and borders out to keep people further and further away. The problem with doing that, though, is as they do that, they have less spare energy to deal with the other insults that life brings them, and then that's when you see the meltdown or the breakdown. Then you meant you called it psychic space. So what's the what's the spacing doing for those listening? Is there a certain healthy amount of psychic space you want? Absolutely. So think of it as a chessboard, you know, and, and let's just pretend that in the center, the center square on a chessboard is the mind and you have the board as the space that you need. Let's say that's a healthy representation of how much space a person needs in their life. And then the pieces would be the energy that you have that help you address and deal with certain things as they come up, good things and bad things alike, right? So if, I, if I'm afraid and I feel like it's coming from, let's say, the left quadrant, I'm going to send resources to that left quadrant to deal with whatever is creating that fear. And then what I would expect to see later is that the pieces go back to where, to, to where they normally would be and where they belong and, and act and perform as you would expect. However, when your when your defenses are cued, you'll you'll see an overwhelming amount of that energy sent and and sometimes kept for long periods of time and in a certain quadrant of life, leaving themselves exposed in all these other areas. You know, this might be the proverbial you know uh, where you start to cry over spilt milk because you didn't have any resource left to manage that small infraction. Whereas if things had been a little bit more normal. That wouldn't have been such a big deal. It wouldn't have overwhelmed you and you wouldn't have felt like you had in some way been, you know, done wrong or something like that. So I think there is the healthier you are, the less space you need from from objects, from problems, from stress, from struggle, 
but the more you feel defensive, the more space you need. So imagine imagine something acres and acres and acres big, but you only have X amount of energy to manage all of that space you need, right? And so you do get yourself stretched out too thin. You don't have enough uh, resource in any one location to manage most things well. Um, and so you find yourself just constantly in this uh, right. never-ending cycle of, you know, of stress. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, think about how often people in relationships, and, and most of us at some point or another have done this, work is stressing them out, but they don't take it out on work because their energy at work is just trying to manage it and get through it. But when they get home and their partner does one small thing <laughs> to irritate them, they blow up at a level and we've all done it at some level. I don't mean blow up, you know, at a tremendous level, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. overreacted to something that was so petty so minor, but it was the release of the, yeah. like you said, it was the explosion level. And so I think this is so important for all of us to think about where am I putting this energy to cope with stressors? Where are they showing right now? If I'm snapping, I think this is a great like challenge for all of us. When we snap, if I pulled that board out and said, where am I putting all my energy with insecurities right now? This shouldn't have been the item. So what is the item? What on this board? Or maybe this should have been the item and I'm just finally blowing because I've never addressed it. Maybe that is it. But but what is it? Where does it belong on the board? Because if I can fix that, and I don't mean fix it as in this is a new job. I mean to release myself of that. Wow, that could be huge for people to use that as a skill set. It really could. I've got a, a different vantage point on, on the, the psychic space. I think the quantitative analogy is is very pertinent in in a lot of scenarios. I've always looked at it as a safe sacred space which was more qualitative rather than quantitative that if I can encourage the space between me and whoever I'm dealing with to feel safe and sacred then, like what you were talking about, Sammy, people are not going to be as on guard because even if they know I've got a different point of uh, view, they also know that I'm very, very interested in theirs. Absolutely. And I really like that, Nick. And, and what I, I don't see yours as different. I see yours as the next step beyond what happens when we learn to manage our psychic space because in Maslow's hierarchy he, you know, of needs, he talks about you know the last the last level is is self self actualization right and you can only get there once you've dealt with your basic needs you you know you've got your safety and security oh yeah, yeah i like that you, yeah do you know what i mean so i, I think yeah. sacred sacred space for me is like spirituality and a lot of us when we're dealing with emotions and cognition you know issues we can't we can't tap into that spiritual place that sacred space that we need to so the the more likely we are to help people feel safe in their minds and in their hearts the more likely they are to manage and i think care for that sacred space that you're talking about i love it anytime we're talking about maslow we're getting to some interesting unique conversations so <laughs> yeah so i love it See, now i think what jason gave me that that reflection that feedback is my statement to the audience was you people are not making me feel safe. And what he mm. said is, you're the speaker. You're the one in control. Why are you not making them feel safe? That's right. And I'm like, whoa, 
that is my job. Why aren't I doing that? So Jason brought up a great way for you to do that. And the question now becomes for anybody listening is, all right, you recognize an insecurity. You recognize you're putting up an armor. At least that allows you to drop the armor. That's a good step. That doesn't mean the insecurity has been, been dealt with at all, though. It just means you've recognized you put up the armor because of the insecurity. How do you address the insecurity? Because, you know, the old thing was, you know, just believe that everything's okay and it'll be okay, but that doesn't really dress at a deep level an insecurity. Well, now you're getting into what I, what I think I have to talk about every day on some level with someone. To be honest, you know, most of the neurosis that's diagnosed in the world uh, some of the root causes, more common root causes of that are an unwillingness to suffer, an unwillingness to risk. and un- But those are all things that are naturally a part of life, right? And so we spend a lot of time and energy trying not to suffer. In reality, we're just trying to escape our own experiences. And in order to deal with these defenses, these this insecurity, you have to acknowledge that you cannot escape this experience you, and, and maybe even at the gut level, just know that you can survive this experience. So therefore, it doesn't need to be avoided. If I can go through this experience, I may come out better for it. So it's this really basic level of a willingness to suffer, a willingness to endure, a willingness to learn, which is all something you can't do when you're not even aware that you're defending against your own experiences. How do you, how do you teach someone to have a willingness to suffer? Without that sounding so scary for them, you pre- well they are suffering, and so they have a choice to either suffer poorly or to suffer well. But they're and they have to acknowledge that suffering is a part of life. They're they're if and most people in my conversations on a regular basis are are coming to that determination that well if this is something that's inescapable, I would at least like to do it well. I'd like to come out on the other side yeah. or at least know what it is. Absolutely. And that's, I guess, what I'm asking. So let's say that someone says, okay, suffering is part of life, right? And so I want to suffer well. What does that mean to suffer well? Like, what does that feel like? How do you know that you're not suffering for, you're not in this for too long? You know, you're not in this place and you're going, well, suffering's part of life. I'm suffering well. I could suffer for a year like this. So what what does suffering well look like? So what does it feel like? let's put this like? in the context of, of sales. I've, I've done, a, done a fair amount of sales training and there is a, a 97% rejection factor in most sales endeavors and so that can really bring up an incredible amount of insecurity. So then salespeople do all these weird, bizarre things that we could associate to armoring rather than owning. I really don't know whether this sale is going to happen. As much as I need the money or the points or the, you know, the, the score on the board, I don't know whether it's going to happen. My first order of business is to find out who are you, what are your needs, and would my product or service benefit you? That, to me, is part of the suffering process, is finding out what's really going on here, because when I get to the rock bottom, I may not have a sale here, but I have done an excellent job as a salesperson finding out what the reality is. Okay, so that's in a professional setting, What about, let's say that somebody is feeling that a relationship that they have with somebody, somebody's turned their back on them or won't talk to them, and it's burning them on the deepest level. And it is an insecurity that they think 
that they're not good enough in some way, that not having that person in their life reflects on them or this person thinks differently of them. How do you do it on something that's very personal? Now, sales can feel personal, but it's on the professional side of life. So on the personal side of life, when it's something that deep, how do you know, okay, it's okay to suffer. You lost a friendship, right? That's okay. to That's part of life to suffer. But what does to suffer well mean? How long does that last? What, is it, what does it so feel like? Is what, if, if what you're doing is working for you, most people will acknowledge that the things that they do because of their trust issues don't really work for them. They know this inherently, but they're they're almost blind or, or in a place in the world where they can't see what other options are, right? So once they can acknowledge that what they're currently and have been doing isn't working, then you can start to, to challenge them, to, to encourage them, to invite them to start considering what else might they do, right? What, what are other, if this is where you're at, it's not working for you, this is where you want to be, now we have to rethink a new, a new strategy, a new technique to help you get where you want to be. Is, is really the, the ultimate version of suffering well is that at the end of what you're enduring, things have improved, not been maintained, not gotten worse, but have improved. Perfect. So you said maybe what you're doing is not working. I love that, Sammy. So maybe here's some other options. What are options people could explore for themselves? So someone's listening and saying, but I don't feel like I'm getting out of this rut that I'm with this situation. I do recognize I'm not suffering well. What are some ways that I can help myself have new ways to approach this or to have a discovery? Well, for me, it, w- it was addressing the issue. Okay, Mike, you and I are, are long-time dear friends, and something happened, you said or did something that I feel has, has put our relationship in jeopardy, and I'm feeling very insecure because what I, who I thought we were may or may not be who we still are, and so I can do any number of things, none of which would really address the situation, or... I could go directly to you and go, Mike, I have a vested interest in this relationship and I feel for some reason, and it might be my own hallucination, but I'm under the impression that our relationship is in jeopardy. Can we have a heartfelt conversation about what's going on here? If you say, no, I'm not interested, well, there's the suffering, maybe the worst case scenario is like, damn, I was right. There really was a problem. Yeah, so let's pause there. Let's go worst case, because that's what we want someone to be able to listen and be able to deal with. So worst case, because I've had this happen once in my life where the person's like, I don't I don't want to talk to you about it. And you're like, there went a friendship, right? I made the effort. You reached out. You tried to solve the problem. They don't want to, and they're not going to. And now it starts to go into your head when you're in a negative space. It starts to go into your head about what went wrong, what did this, and how do I, you know, and it really can dig deep. How do you catch yep. those where you there's no easy solution? There's nobody on the other side that's going to help solve this for you. Most people ultimately are afraid of of turning into nothing, right? I mean, they really we really fear this disintegration of psyche of of heart of relationships. We we really fear that. And we subscribe that we we attach that fear to almost every encounter that we have to take a risk in as if it's fatal peril and like it's going to ultimately end in our our demise and death most people don't realize until you question whether or not if that's true whether or not it's true so once you can point out to them can they survive the worst case scenario 
And they'll give you all kinds of answers up until the moment of truth. Like, no, I don't think so. I don't know. But when you really press it and they really consider if they are going to survive the worst case scenario, most people do get to the point in their lives where they realize, I may not like it. It may hurt a lot. It, 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 could, it could wound me, but I will survive. Once people start to realize that they will survive, the the, fa- the the part where they have to face the issue is a little less demonized. It's a little less insurpassable. It becomes manageable. It becomes possible for them. It's and brilliant. And then they start getting ready to take those risks. I love it. I love it. I love it because I, I think that's so powerful to say to somebody, you know, 10 years from now, if, for, if this was a relationship, like the example I gave, if this person wasn't in your life, will your life be horrific? Almost everybody's going to go, well, no, you know, I'll, I'll have new friends or I'll have this, but no, it won't be. And okay. Okay. Then. So th- just for your own self to hear that you say that is I think gigantic. That that's awesome. Uh, Barry and Sammy, you two have given us an incredible conversation on this today with some real tools we can, we can all use after listening to this really applying. So thank you for those listening. If you want to learn about, learn about Barry Moniak or Sammy Rangel, check them out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. You can learn about them. You can link to them both. As you can tell, brilliant individuals. Thank you both for coming on this week's episode. Thank you for having us. I'm excited. Thank you. I appreciate everything you guys are doing. Well, absolutely. For everyone listening, remember to visit the Everyday Mindfulness Show on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your family, your friends about it, and enjoy living a life of everyday mindfulness. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.